The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Wow, did you hear what he just read, what Ben just read? I was standing in the pew there. I was like, what in the world? And I have to come up here and explain that. And people were asking me, so how's the sermon? I said, well, it's coming along. That was this morning. This morning I was reading commentaries like, what am I going to do with the two witnesses? I was in Bulgaria at an area group meeting, and this is the sermon I worked on there, and I was just completely immersed, two witnesses, two witnesses all the time. And these missionaries in Bulgaria were not thinking about the two witnesses and had no idea what I was talking about. I want to begin this sermon very unusually with three illustrations right off the top. And these illustrations are really application-oriented, and you haven't even heard the sermon yet. So I'm going to do the application up front, and it's more of a kind of a general application on why we should read the book of Revelation. And especially chapters like this that have these difficult sections that have so many details that are hard to understand. And so the the three uh, illustrations, the first one comes from the story of Rebecca when she was pregnant. And do you remember how she was pregnant? She didn't know it, but she was pregnant with twins. And the twins were jostling her inside her womb. And she didn't know what was happening to her. And she went and inquired of the Lord, what is happening to me? And she was told by the word of the Lord, two nations are in your womb. We, knew, we know them as Jacob and Esau. And he gave her a prophecy about Jacob and Esau. So that's the first reason I think we should read the book of Revelation. That as we're going through anguish, as we're going through difficulty in life, as we're in a a time of persecution, of affliction, of trial in our lives, and especially all the more as we are faithful as witnesses to Christ, we're going to have even more trouble. The more faithful you are, the more trouble and persecution will come to you in this world. I think we know that. And that we can say, what is happening to me? And maybe not just me, but to our brothers and sisters around the world that are being persecuted or going through hard times. We go to the Lord and He gives us the explanation. And it's an explanation that's far weightier and far longer lasting than we can possibly imagine. That's why we were going to read about the two witnesses. So we can understand our own life. Secondly, when I was a little kid, my father was from Miami, Florida. Um, and we went one time for Christmas down to Miami from Massachusetts, my home state. And I, I forget how old I was, but I was little. And we got packed up in this car and we started rolling, you know, rolling south. We crossed uh, the state line into Connecticut, and I asked the question that you ask when you're that age, are we almost there? Now, that's a very irritating question for a father who knows we are nowhere near almost there. Um, And I have no idea what my dad said to me. We made a similar trip when I was at uh, MIT, when I was in Campus Crusade. We'd go down to Daytona Beach in the spring. Basically, I knew that we were almost there as things just got warmer and warmer. As we moved from New England, Massachusetts, you just could tell... As the trip was unfolding, you, you knew where you were heading. Now, here's, here's my point. We Christians believe in a linear view of history. We don't believe in karma and endless cycles and things like that. We believe in a point A, point B, all the way through. And so in the book of Revelation, Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. 
We're going somewhere. And the Lord has, in his wisdom, given us this incredible book to tell us details about where we're going. That we might know the things that must soon take place. That's what it says at the beginning of the book. We can know the future. And you might say, well, what does that have to do with tomorrow for me or today? Well, maybe nothing directly, although I will say the book of Revelation colors how you look at your everyday life. It, it tends to shape and color the way you see things. So it actually does have an impact on whatever your day holds tomorrow. Maybe you're a student. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom. Maybe you're a man with a certain job. Maybe you work with your hands. Maybe you work with your mind. Uh, but when you go to work tomorrow, wherever you're going to do tomorrow, the book of Revelation, as you immerse yourself, your mind, your soul, and it, it colors the way you see things. You, you see the world differently. You realize how temporary everything is and that we're moving to a final omega day. Jesus said, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and last, the beginning and the end. We're going to an omega day. And he's already figured that day out. He had fi figured out before the foundation of the world. And he has chosen to give us some details about what that's going to look like. And so it's very powerful. Where are we going? And th the third illustration... And this is a question I wrestle with probably more than any of you. Why is this book so complicated? Why is it so difficult? And so the image in my mind here is of a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle. I don't know that I've ever done a thousand-piece. I've done some big ones. And I've talked about the way I approach jigsaw puzzles that frustrates my family, in which I set all the pieces out in this matrix, uh, 85 by 85 matrix, and I just go through systematically and just do like a machine. It's just so boring and awful. Like, why do you do that? That's no fun. Well, what would you like me to do? Well, what you do is you look at the, at the cover and you get the picture on the cover and you see where, what the final picture looks like. And then you see there's some sky, there's some sea, there's some, maybe it's uh, one of those old mills, you know, those saw mills. And there's some trees and you get all the tree pieces together and you get all the river pieces together and the stone pieces. And then you do it that way, pastor. That's what you do. All right, fair enough. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to gather together like pieces and start to fit them together. And we're not going to cut off little nubs or fill in little empty things. We're going to actually try to make them fit like they really fit. And that is harder to do than you think it is. So I'm asking you this morning to work hard with me on this text. It's not going to be easy. But we're going to try to assemble some little sub-assemblies, some little sub-pieces, spoken like a true mechanical engineer. We're going to put together some sub-pieces and then see how they might fit together with some other things. Look, I can do the easy thing. I can just say, let's just do the big picture on the two, two witnesses. You heard what Ben read. There are, it seems, going to be two witnesses, or there are now two witnesses, depending on how you look at it, who are standing before the Lord of all the earth, and they are proclaiming prophesying in the power of God and they have a hard time they are persecuted they are put to death but they rise and ascend to heaven in glory and so the big picture is this we are called on to witness to Jesus Christ the, the ministry of reconciliation has been given to us and we are still set in a hostile world Satan, who we're going to talk about much in the next number of weeks in chapter 12 and on, is going to oppose us. He's going to fight us. He's going to use government to do that. And so the church is going to be witnessing to Christ in a hostile world. We're going to have a hard time, but we're going to be faithful. And in the end, our enemies are going to be judged by the wrath of God if they don't repent. But we ourselves will be in heaven. Big picture. Look, I don't know any evangelical that can't sign off on that big picture. So I almost feel at that point, here's another illustration, like we're up at 35,000 feet and we're flying through the clouds and there's the sun, the sun, the bright 
round yellow ball, sun. There's the blue sky. There's the clouds, white puffy things, clouds. Through the occasional break in the cloud, there's some green thing down there, earth. Okay, big picture. I got it. But friends, are you interested in the details? Do the details matter? So yes, I have at least one person interested in the details. We're going to try to actually exegete these 14 verses. We're going to try to look at the details. And so I can't go with many conservative Calvinistic or whatever commentators that just do that big picture thing and say this is a representation of the church in its suffering witness in the world and of the final judgment of the enemies of God. I just don't think it, the details line up with that big picture. I think it's talking about literally two individuals who at some point are going to stand on the earth in Jerusalem and testify before the Antichrist and will die at his hand but will rise after three and a half days and will ascend to heaven and that will have a certain impact specifically on the Jewish nation that I want to talk about today. So that's where we're going to go. So do, do your best to follow with me because I'm not doing... I already, if, if all I'm doing is a big picture, you just had the sermon, now I'm going to apply it. Be faithful witnesses, be praying, etc. That's easy to do. But I'm not going to do that. I'm actually going to walk through the details and say I actually think that there will be someday these two individuals. I've already answered why you should care about these two individuals, but I'll try to apply it a little bit better at the end. Now, before I walk through this, we just need to understand what we mean by the prophetic witness of the world. The fact that the ministry or the message of reconciliation has been entrusted to us, the disciples of Jesus Christ. This is significant because salvation of lost people depends on this. This is what we heard from Jonathan in the baptism today. This is what we believe. We're surrounded by lost people every day. And every one of them, all those sinners, they're under the wrath of God right now. If they're not Christians, they're presently under the wrath of God. The wrath of God abides on them, John 3, 36. The only answer is the gospel of Christ. Every one of them who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on one they have never believed in? And how can they believe in someone of whom they have never heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? That's the point. And how can they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So the key to our salvation is the ability to accept the word of God through human messengers. As 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul says to the Thessalonian believers, we also thank God continually because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. So you're not looking at the Bible or a sermon as just a human word. You actually are accepting it as a living, active, powerful word from God. And it can change your heart. It can change your soul. So also we have to ask, what is a prophet? These two are prophets. They're given power to prophesy. A prophet is an individual who stands up, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and says... Thus says the Lord. Says the words of the Lord directly. That's the, the office of a prophet. The office was instituted for the nation of Israel after the nation of Israel had come out of bondage in Egypt and come through the Red Sea. They came to Mount Sinai where they received the Ten Commandments. They received the law of God. And God spoke the word to them. They heard the voice of God as God descended on Mount Sinai and he came down in fire and cloud and the ground beneath them shook and he spoke the Ten Commandments. 
And the people were so terrified to hear the voice of God that they pleaded with Moses, please, would you go up the mountain and stand in the presence of God and hear his words and come down and tell us and we will listen to you. And God said, what these people have said is good. That was the office of prophet. The prophet would stand in the presence of God. And then God said in the Deuteronomy, I will raise up a prophet like you. And he will speak to the people. And so God raised up actually many prophets. And so Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, these are prophets and others. And they came and spoke the word of God. But consistently, the Jewish people would not listen to them. Again and again, the Jewish nation refused to heed the word of God. Stephen charged Israel with this crime in Acts 7, 51 and 52. He said to the Sanhedrin representing the whole Jewish nation, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your forefathers did not persecute? And now you have betrayed and murdered the Son of God who came. So that's the culmination of their rejection of the message, the Word of God, prophets. And then they killed Christ together with the Gentile leaders, Pontius Pilate. Throughout the Old Testament, we have clear evidence of the Jewish nation re refusing to listen to the prophets that God sent. As it says in 2 Kings 17, as the northern kingdom of Israel is about to be deported by the Assyrians, this summary statement happens in 2 Kings 17. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways, observe my commands and decrees, but they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their fathers who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings he had given them. They followed worthless idols and themselves they became worthless. And then as Stephen said, all the more when the culmination of the prophetic ministry, Jesus stood before them and they would not heed him but handed him over to the Gentiles to be killed. I believe these two witnesses are... A, por a portion, a part of God's final warning to the Jewish nation to turn and trust in Christ. And I believe that they will be effective. I believe that in the end, God will take hardness or blindness away from the Jews, away from the Jewish nation, and they will turn and believe in Christ. That has to happen before he appears in the clouds. It has to happen by the hearing of the word preached. And I think that these two witnesses are going to stand at a key final moment, a final opportunity, and testify, and I think it will be effective. So that's where we're heading. Let's look at the verses now. Beginning at verse 1 and 2, the temple measured. We see God's meticulous control here. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles, they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Well, here we see John, as he is often in the book of Revelation, drawn into the action, the visionary action, the apocalyptic action. He's drawn in. We saw that in, in Revelation 4 when he's invited to go up through a doorway to heaven. And then in Revelation 5 when he weeps and weeps because no one is found worthy to take the scroll from the right hand of God. And then Jesus comes and takes it. Uh, even the last chapter where he's told or commanded to go take a scroll which lay open in the hand of the mighty angel and eat it. So he's involved here and he's given a reed like a measuring rod and he, he is drawn in and he's given uh, work to do. And the task here is, is of measuring and counting. 
He's got this reed, this, uh, the Greek word implies this, this tubular kind of long plant that would grow in marshy areas. And they would sometimes use it as a measuring stick. It could grow as long as 10 feet, very lightweight and stiff. And so he's told to measure uh, the temple of God and the altar. And then he's told also to count uh, the worshipers there. Uh, in the vision of Ezekiel uh, in chapters 40 through 48, which I consider to be nine of the hardest chapters in the Bible to interpret. They're very difficult. But same thing, the prophet is told to measure an idealized prophetic temple in that vision, measured off with an angel. Actually, an angel measures it with a measuring stick. And so the walls and the courtyards and the land surrounding that visionary Ezekiel visionary temple is measured. The river of life flowing from that temple is measured and it gets deeper and wider as it goes. And the reports of the, those measurements are, are made in the book of Ezekiel. But here in Revelation, there's no numbers that come back. We don't have any idea the measurement, just that he's told to do it, to measure. Now, what is this temple that he is to measure? Now, you would not believe how many pages of commentary there is about this. It's unbelievable. And just be thankful that that's my job to read them and you don't need to read through all of them. All right, it's a very difficult question to answer. What is this temple? Remember, if we could just set it, I believe that the Revelation was the last book of the Bible to to be written. Uh, most scholars put it at the very, very end of the first century, around 90, let's say, AD 90, something like that, toward the end. John was a very old man. By that time then, if that's the case, the Jewish temple would have been destroyed for two decades by the Romans. In AD 70, it was destroyed. So there's no earthly temple in John's day. So what is this temple? Uh, Those that hold to a literal view of of this chapter say that this temple is built by the Jews under the reign of the Antichrist. Some call it the Tribulation Temple. I'm not going to entirely go there. Um, I think it's partly true, but I'll get get to that. This Tribulation Temple, according to them, is built during the last seven years of human history, and there the Jews will renew the animal sacrificial system. Now, if I can just stop and say, though I do believe that will happen, it's very important for me to say it is repugnant to God. I do not hold with dispensational theology that say that there's like two tracks, one for the Jews, one for the rest. When Jesus died on the cross, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God is saying by that the way, the new and living way into the Holy of Holies is open through Jesus. Therefore, animal sacrifice is obsolete and aging will soon pass away. Hebrews 8. The blood of bulls and goats has never taken away sin. It was just symbolic. And the need for the symbolism is done now that Jesus has come. But as I've noted before, someone at some point sewed that curtain back up. I guarantee it was Jewish hands that did it. And they reestablished animal sacrificial system for at least several decades after Jesus. Went on through the 40s, 50s, 60s, on to 70 AD. Why? Because they didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't believe that Jesus was anything but a deceiver of the people. They did not think the animal sacrificial system was over. They killed Stephen for saying so. They would do the same to the Apostle Paul for saying so, that the animal sacrificial system has been fulfilled in Jesus. It's done. It's obsolete. We don't need it anymore. Hebrews 9 and 26 says, Now that Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Once for all, done. Now, the temple here in Revelation 11 is called the temple of God. Now, here in Revelation, I think that's significant. I don't think God wants his name attached to that physical temple here in the book of Revelation. I think that 
this must be a heavenly sanctuary, the true temple in heaven. And this is the way the, book, the, the word temple is usually used in the book of Revelation. The tabernacle, that is the tent, and then later Solomon's temple, that was a, a physical building that was built. Both of those were built according to a heavenly pattern that was shown first to Moses, then to David, um, of how to build it. And they were copies, earthly copies, of a heavenly reality. And so the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 8.5, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. The true temple is up in heaven. So if you look later in our chapter, I'm not going to get to it today. I'm not going to not even get to our chapter today. I'm trying though. <laughs> but look at verse 19. Look down at verse 19. It says, then God's temple in heaven was opened. Do you see that? And within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake, great hailstorm, etc. So that's the heavenly temple. It's a heavenly, I think the same thing's going on here. Now, the question, of course, is if this heavenly temple, then what is the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, that's getting trampled by the Gentiles for 42 months? I believe that's the earthly version. And that's Jerusalem. And we're going to talk more about that in just a moment. Now, the measuring implies God's careful knowledge and his protection. God is a God of details. And the measuring implies scope and limitation. God is a God of mathematics. Some of you will be delighted and agree and say, Amen, Pastor. Others are like, no way. I, I serve an artistic God. I, I believe in an artistic God, a God of color and shapes. Um, and others are like, no, no, no. Precision. Mathematics. I think both are true. I mean, there's so much beauty, but there's so much order and precision, too. And it says in the scripture, even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. And in that context, he's talking about don't fear your persecutors. God knows the number, numbers of hairs in your head, and so God's going to protect you. And uh, I think also the sense of election. There's a sense of a specific number of people, and God's going to save them, and none of them are going to get lost. It's not random. It's like, like I don't know uh, what's happening. It's that like God knows exactly by name, and he's going to save all that the Father gives to Jesus. They're going to come to Christ. And it also, uh, it's a, a sense of delimitation, of limiting. And God has boundaries and limitations, and he sets that up for us. Um, so it says in Job 38, 8 through 11, Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst forth, forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it with thick darkness. Listen, when I fixed limits for it, for the sea, I fixed limits for the sea and set its doors and bars in place. When I said to the sea, this far you may come and no farther, here your proud waves halt. So you go down to the, the, the seashore here in North Carolina or in Cape Cod or wherever you go and you just see this, this thin boundary of sand and, and dune grass and all that. That's not protecting you from getting flooded. It's the will of God, the word of God that puts a limit to things. And so this is a sense of the limitation and protection of the people of God versus the satanic forces that are going to engulf the earth at that point. And it's said that the court of the Gentiles has been given over to them to be trampled for 42 months. And this 42-month trampling refers to the worst part of the reign of the Antichrist that's coming. So let me just give you my big-picture interpretation. Revelation 11, this section we're looking at, has two parts. These 14, 14 verses, 13 verses. The measurement of the temple and the counting of, of the worshipers, part one. And then the work of the two witnesses in Jerusalem, part two. Many take a figurative approach saying it's in general talking about the witness of Christians in the world. And the persecution they endure their final, final glory and the final judgment of the enemies. All of those things are true, but I think it's insufficient to explain the details of this chapter. 
Therefore, I'm going to take a literal interpretation here. The details, for example, fire coming out of the mouths of the prophets, their ability to strike the earth with plagues, doesn't line up with Christian witness over 20 centuries. Nothing like that has happened. That's not even our desire, frankly. Our desire usually is what? The conversion of our enemies. We're told to turn the other cheek. And so therefore, I believe this is a final phase of witness in which at this point in history, God is openly displaying his wrath. No doubt about it. We're situated at the end in verse 14 between the second and third woe, which lines it up with the seven trumpets of judgment that we've seen. We'll talk more about that in a moment, but this is situated. And so therefore, there are these details. For me, another key in interpretation of this whole thing, especially Jerusalem, temple, all of that, comes from 2 Thessalonians 2, and we're going to see this again and again over the next number of weeks. But 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4, which is not apocalyptic. It's not, it's not prophetic, visionary language. It's just an epistle written to a New Testament church by Paul. And there the Thessalonians were being told by false teachers that the end had already come. They'd missed the day of the Lord. They missed it like a train. Well, they didn't have trains back then. But anyway, they missed it like a boat sailing. The boat has sailed. And the people were greatly discouraged having missed the day of the Lord. You're not going to miss the day of the Lord. It's not possible to miss the day of the Lord. But then he said this. That day will not come about until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness appears. The man of sin, man of lawlessness The man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or his worship. So he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. It's very interesting phraseology there. And I look at the phrase God's temple there a little bit differently than in Isaiah. I mean, um, Revelation 11. So this Antichrist is going to set himself up in supposedly God's temple, uh, proclaiming himself to be supposedly God. So I do the air quotes. They're equally valid. He's as much God as he is in God's temple. But there it is. And so there is something significant and meaningful. The end won't come until that happens. The man of lawlessness, I think, is the Antichrist that is coming of 1 John 2.18. You've heard that an Antichrist is coming. And now many Antichrists have come. So there's many dress rehearsals. But then there's one final one coming. He is coming. He's, He's going to be the focus of Revelation 13. We haven't got there yet. He is the one who specifically rises up and kills these two witnesses. So, I believe, based on prophecy from Daniel, based on what we see here, Jesus' statement, I'm going to go through all this in the future, not today, but just a quick sketching out. At the end of the world, a powerful ruler will rise up and, according to Daniel, will make a covenant with the Jews for the rebuilding of the temple and the establishment of the animal sacrificial system. But, I add this... There's not commentators that say this. Because I'm walking a middle ground between reform commentators that don't talk about details in the future at all and dispensational types that talk about lots of details but have, it seems, two plans, one for the Jews. I'm not going with them either. I'm saying, but this temple will be in no way pleasing to God, but it will be built. The tribulation temple, this is the place where the Jews will resume animal sacrifice, but halfway through the seven, final seven-year period, the Antichrist will break his covenant with them and put an end to animal sacrifice and set himself up as God within that temple. The true temple is in heaven where Christ went to present his own blood. And it's going to culminate in the second coming of Christ in which Jesus will destroy the Antichrist by the breath of his mouth. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 Then the lawless, lawless one will be revealed 
whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Again, that's 2 Thessalonians 2 is just epistle. It's just telling you what's going to happen. It's not apocalyptic. And so that's what's going to happen. All right, so now that's the temple and all that. Now let's talk about the two witnesses. Look at verse 3. I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. So they're sent to prophesy, to speak forth the words of God. They're sent by Almighty God. God is sending them to the reeling planet, planet Earth. It is a hurting, reeling, judged planet Earth. They're situated between the second and third woe. So what we've already seen in Revelation 8 and 9 is the seven trumpets that came from the seven seals. So we've got six of the seven trumpets have been blown now at this point in the account. The first trumpet was hail and fire mixed with blood, burning up a third of the earth and the trees and all the green grass. The second trumpet was a huge blazing mountain that fell into the sea, turning a third of the sea into blood and killing a third of all living creatures in the sea and destroying a third of the ships. The third trumpet was a blazing star named Wormwood, which fell on fresh water and poisoned a third of the water supply. The fourth trumpet was the sun, the moon, and the stars darkened to a third of their usual illumination or intensity. The fifth trumpet, demons pour up out of the abyss, the abode of demons, the punishment place of demons, and they pour out and they afflict and torment human beings for five months like a plague of locusts, only they're stinging like scorpions. And then the sixth trumpet results in a demonic, probably demonic and human army, spreading over the surface of the earth and killing one-third of the population of the earth. That's what's happened. It's absolutely staggering. These events actually, I believe, will occur. But without someone interpreting them for the people, saying this is happening because of your sins, they will not know to make it a religious event. They will not think of it that way. And so these two witnesses are there as a grace of grace from God to unbelievers who aren't reading the Bible to say, let me tell you what is happening to you. Let me explain what is going on. Now, the task of these two witnesses is going to be very difficult. They're going to tell these suffering people who are in agony and torment, that they are suffering because of their own sins, but the God who is sending these afflictions will welcome them back and forgive them if they'll just turn to Christ. That's the message. You can well imagine it's not going to be well received. It's going to be a hard message to give. Not only that, I'm going to add an additional wrinkle that I believe fits into my overall scheme, eschatological scheme. They're going to have to tell the Jews that the temple that's being rebuilt is worthless and that they should turn from these vain things and turn from animal sacrifice and trust in Jesus. And that's not going to be very popular with the Jews at all. Needless to say, if there is, as I believe, an antichrist who is a control freak more than you can ever imagine. He will not appreciate these two telling the truth about who he is and pleading with people to come to Christ. So he will do what he can to assault them. It's going to be very difficult. And amazingly, he will, the antichrist, the beast from the abyss, will, when they're done prophesying, rise up and kill them. Now, these two are sent out as a pair. They're patterned after Jesus sending out his disciples two by two. They're reminiscent of the general pattern that in the Bible that every matter must be established by the testimony of, of at least two witnesses. They're also able, just at the human level, to encourage one another. It's a hard day, day after day, 1,260 of them. 
And God empowers them. Look at verse 3. I'll give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days. Like Acts 1.8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses. But the real power of the prophets is going to be in their words. It's going to be in their mouth. The things they say. Jeremiah 23, 29 says, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks rocks in pieces? God's word is like a fire and a hammer. It's powerful. They're going to have a powerful presence. They're going to be bold, unafraid. They're going to stand firm. Surrounded by all this rage and hostility. It reminds me of the ministry of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was sent with a very unpopular message at the end of that phase of Judah's history. Very unpopular, his message. And it says in Jeremiah 15, 20, and 21, God says to Jeremiah, I will make you a wall to this people. I'll make you a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they will not be able to overcome you. For I am with you to rescue you and save you, declares the Lord. I will save you from the hands of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the cruel. That's Jeremiah 15. How much more are these two witnesses? God also gives them supernatural powers to do miracles, as we'll see in just a moment. Where are they located? Well, for me, this is maybe one of the easier parts, although not for every commentator. Commentators, it's their job to make things complicated, I think. I mean, if you could have as many footnotes, I shouldn't say this. Let's just keep going. All right, their location. These two witnesses will be ministering in the city of Jerusalem. How do I know that? Because it says so in verse 8. Where also their Lord was crucified. So you really only have two options on the end of verse 8. We know that Jesus was crucified. He's their Lord. Where was he crucified? Well, you really only have two answers. Planet Earth or the city of Jerusalem. Planet Earth is just, he was crucified on Earth. That doesn't tell me much. I'm not really going to pay for a commentary to tell me that. This is the city of Jerusalem. Why is it called Sodom? Well, because at that point it's a wicked, immoral place. Why is it called Egypt? Again, the same thing. How, does, how do the Jews remember their bondage, their slavery in Egypt? So it's a place of bondage. As the Apostle Paul says, the physical Jerusalem is in bondage with her children. So it's a symbol of wickedness and bondage, but it's where their Lord was crucified. So they're in Jerusalem. They're right there. Furthermore, the Antichrist will be there. The reason the commentators say that it's, it's not located in, in Jerusalem is, is the term great city, the great city. They usually see that as Rome, the seven hills and all that in Rome, the city of military power. Let me tell you something about the Antichrist. He's got a military governmental power aspect. That's true. No doubt about it. But he also has a religious aspect. He wants to be not only feared and obeyed, he wants to be worshipped as God. And that puts him, I think, in the providence of God, it puts him at Jerusalem. So he's there, and they're, and they're prophesying there in the city of Jerusalem. And they're going to do it for a certain length of time. They've got a certain uh, length of time measured out for their ministry, 1260 days. Now, this is going to take half a sermon to explain the 1260 days. And that's not today, clearly not at quarter till noon. All right, so at 1260 days, it's one of four different ways and times that that same span of time has given us. 1260 days, also 42 months with the solar, the standard solar month being 30 days. It's 1260 days. Also, time times and half a time equals three and a half years. Also lines up, I think, with the 70th week of Daniel, where you've got these 77s 
and there's this 69 sevens. Jesus is cut off. Then you got this one last seven in the book of Daniel, Daniel 9, the 70 weeks. And it says halfway, I looked it up in the Hebrew, halfway through the seven, he will break the covenant and put an end to animal sacrifice. <laughs> it's not hard math. What's half of seven? There it is. Three and a half. Keeps happening. Also, Elijah shut up the sky for three and a half years. We're going to see this number again and again. We're going to see time, times, and half a time in Daniel 12, 7. The woman in Revelation 12 who gives birth to the male child. We'll deal with that in time. But she flees into the desert and she's protected for 1,260 days. Uh, in verse 2, the Gentiles trample on the holy city for 42 months of this chapter. This is a consistent length of time. The only decision left for me is the first half of the second half. I think it only makes sense if it's the first half. They do their prophesying in relative peace, so to speak. While the temple is being built, while things are getting established, etc. And then he clamps down on them and then the horror starts. Second half. That's the way I would tend to read it. Look at their clothing and demeanor. Verse 3. They're clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth is a sign of mourning, especially for sin. Elijah wore it continually as he prophesied to the people. It's a sign of seriousness of sin, grieving over the sin of the nation and of the people. Isaiah wore sackcloth while he prophesied. So it's a very serious demeanor. And you can imagine their preaching will go something like this. Hear now, you inhabitants of the earth. Listen to what we have to say. You are suffering as no generation has ever suffered in history. You are suffering ecological disasters. You are suffering torment. You are suffering death. A third of the population has died. We are here to tell you none of these things are accidental. They are sent as judgments from Almighty God. The God who created heaven and earth, the sea and everything in it. The earth and everything in it, the sky and everything that flies through it. This God you have offended by your violation of his laws. You are idolaters, you are wicked and sinful. But God, in his grace, is giving you an opportunity. You're not dead, you're alive, you can hear what we're saying. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross under the wrath of God. To take away the penalty of sin. And if you just believe in him and if you trust in him, all of your sins will be forgiven. And you will not suffer the real torment, which is eternity in hell. And you Jews who are here for the building of the temple, do not think that God is pleased with this. This is an abomination of desolation. The temple itself, it is displeasing to God. God sent his son as the final sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats isn't going to save you. You don't need to turn to these vain, empty things. You don't need to go back to an obsolete law that has passed away. Come to Christ and trust in him. Do not trust in what this ruler is doing. He is deceiving you. Believe in Jesus. Well, that's what the witness will sound like or something like that. Verse 4 calls them two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. The Lord of the earth is either God or the Antichrist. Those are the possibilities. They do both to some degree. They stand before God and really serve him. But they're standing in front of this wicked man and boldly proclaiming the truth. And the image of the uh, two olive trees and two lampstands comes basically from Zechariah 4. And the message there is a symbol of Israel's ministry in the world to be a light, a golden lampstand to the world, and oil flowing. But the real message is this. Not by power, nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So only by the spirit of God and by the word of God will any transformation and salvation happen. So they stand there in the power of the Lord. And by the power of the spirit, they preach. So who are they? 
when John MacArthur preached, he said, if God's looking for any volunteers, I volunteer. I would love to be one of these guys. Um, basically, the simple answer is we don't know who they are. The text doesn't tell us who they are. Now, the way that they are able to judge the earth and strike the earth with various plagues points to two key individuals, to Moses, who is able to turn the, the water of the Nile into blood and strike the uh, uh, land of Egypt with plagues. And then, of course, Elijah, who calls down fire. You remember that story where a wicked king goes to capture Elijah and sends a captain with 50 man, men. And he says, oh, man of God, come down. This is what the king says. Ahaziah, I think it was come down from there. He says, if I'm a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and burn up you and your 50 men. Boom! And they're dead. The second captain goes with the same demeanor, same attitude, same result. If I'm a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and burn up you and your 50 men. I like the third captain. He, he's a, a wise man. I, I picture him like on his knees saying, oh, Elijah, if you wouldn't mind coming Please have respect for me and my life. I have a wife and kids. I wouldn't mind eating dinner at my home tonight. Would you mind coming? And so he does come, and he gives the hard message to the king. So there's a picture of the fire from heaven falling, and so people think this must be Moses and Elijah. Also, Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Do I think they're Moses and Elijah? I'm going to tell you what I think. I don't know who these two individuals are. But I think they will be real individuals. And they will have power. Look at verse 5 and 6. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. And these men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. As I already mentioned, this is not the character and nature of Christian witness for 20 centuries. It's not what we do. We get burned. I mean, John Huss was burned at the stake. William Tyndale was burned at the stake. We get persecuted. We get killed. We don't do the fire. You remember James and John wanted to do that? Remember in Luke? Some Samaritan village wouldn't let Jesus come in. He said, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven and burn them up? And Jesus rebuked them. The Son of Man didn't come into the world to destroy lives, but to save them. Well, that's true of the first coming. But that's not true of the second coming. He's going to come to kill people in the second coming. Revelation 19 will make that clear. Just before that, there is a clear display of the wrath of God going on as a final warning to the sinful human race. These two fit into that. They have a different kind of ministry than we do. We're, we're like Stephen. We, as we get stoned and sink to our death right before, like Stephen said, Lord, please don't hold the sin against them. Please let some of them come to Christ like Saul of Tarsus did. We want the persecutors to come to Christ. But these two, if you attack them, that's the key. Not just if you don't believe their message. If you go to attack them, fire comes out of their mouth. Now, you're going to say, Pastor, do you think literally fire is going to come out of their mouth? I would say, why not? But if you want to just say metaphorically, like say, oh God, may fire consume them, like Elijah did, I'd be fine with that too. I don't think a literal sword comes out of Jesus' mouth either to slay his enemies. So you can work that through. But at any rate, they have the power to do that. And they have the power to shut up the sky so that it won't rain. This is after wormwood has already polluted a third of the, of the, of the water. So now they're not even getting any rain. Very grievous plague. This, I believe, is the final prophetic warning to the Jewish nation. So that 
all Israel, as Romans 11, 26 and 27 says, will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, verse 7, when they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them. The beast we have not met yet. He will come two chapters later in Revelation 13. And he's not called the beast from the abyss there. He's called the beast from the sea. But I think it's the same. This beast, this is the Antichrist. Now, John knows the whole vision has already happened by the time he sits down to write the book. So he already knows who the beast is. He just gives us a little bit of foretaste. The beast that we're going to meet two chapters from now, he's the one that rises up and overpowers them and kills them. God is in the process of raising up monsters, raising up mighty Leviathan creatures, sea creatures, dragons, Goliath figures, and then defeating them. And the kind of final monster that's going to rise up, humanly speaking, will be this Antichrist. And his power will be so evident in that he defeats these two witnesses that he's actually able to kill genuine people of God. But it's not the final word. He himself will be destroyed by the breath of Jesus' mouth and by the splendor of his coming. And how great will our joy be when Christ's power is displayed at that time. So it's awesome. This is going to be the fulfillment of the horn in Daniel 7 that waged war against the saints and defeated them. Yes, it says saints plural. I think he's going to wage war not just against these two, but against all the saints on earth at that point. But that doesn't preclude a literal interpretation here. He's going to wage war on these two as well. And he's going to defeat them. And they're going to die. And then they're going to be dishonored. Verse 8 through 10. Their bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and, Gomorrah, uh, Sodom and Egypt, sorry, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those on the earth. This wicked world, so filled with hatred for God and the people of God, will over, overflow with dishonor and disrespect by not letting these two get buried. And joy, so that they actually send each other gifts when these to finally die. Some um, more figurative interpreters of this text say, what, is the whole world going to watch by television? That's what one of the commentators said. And actually mocked it, put an exclamation mark in the commentary. But when that person, who's a good brother, a good scholar, wrote his commentary, that's basically what there was, television. Now we have these things. And, and have you seen how you can live stream any event, anytime in the... Do you feel like that's a small part or a big part of 21st century culture? Demonstrations, they got these things going on. Now, all I'm doing is looking at the time thing. I know exactly what time it is. Don't worry. <laughs> but they live stream events. Is it so hard to imagine that the death of these will be replayed and live streamed? And that the whole world will be able to gaze on their bodies in some sense and celebrate. And, after three and a half days, see them rise again. See them rise from the dead. And terror seizes them. Look at verse 11. After three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here and they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them while they looked on 
What's the point of all that? To vindicate their message. To vindicate their message. Even Jesus, it says in Romans 4, was raised to life for their vindication or justification. It's the vindication of Christ and everyone who believes in him. Resurrection is vindication. Look at verse 13. At that very hour, there's a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. Clear judgment on that part of the city. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And here's the point. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Praise God. Some people are going to get the message. Who? Let's just start with the Jewish nation. Something has to turn them. They are bitterly disappointed disappointed now by the Antichrist. The animal sacrifice is not even going to happen now. Maybe they're able to listen to the message that these two have been preaching now for 1,260 days, and they'll turn to Christ. And then, verse 14, the second woe is past. The third woe is coming soon. Application, well, I have preached the gospel to you this morning. You're going to go outside, as we do every week, and it's going to look normal to you, just like it always does. You just have to decide if you believe the word of God. Will these things happen? How will the two witnesses and understanding the details help you in your life tomorrow? I don't know. If you're lost, I would urge that you flee to Christ. One thing you don't know, you may not know when the Antichrist and all that's coming, but you also don't know when you're going to die. This, this very day might be your last day on earth. Come to Christ. Trust in him while there's still time. And you who are already Christians, our job, having crossed over from death to life, is to then witness to those who haven't crossed over yet. And we just show a striking lack of courage and boldness on that. Pray to the God who's going to give these folks incredible boldness to give you boldness this week to share the gospel. Just say something to somebody. Just try this. You're at work or you're at school or whatever. Have you, have you ever read the book of Revelation? What? Have you ever read the book of Revelation? No. Well, maybe. And then off you go. <laughs> have a conversation. Talk about the gospel. And then understand my three illustrations. We'll close with this. You know, why is this happening to me? It's because God is at work. The suffering that we're going through, this is part of God's plan. Where are we heading? No, we're not there yet. Crossing the border into, the, into Connecticut is not the same as being in Miami. We've got a long way to go. But in our, our time, maybe even within our generation, it might come. So I'm going to say this again in future weeks. You parents, tell your children these things. Tell them the details. Get them ready. It may not happen in your lifetime, but it might happen in theirs. Or it might happen in yours. And then finally, put the puzzle together. As you're doing this, go back over these words. Read them. There is a blessing given to everyone who reads and understands the words of the book of Revelation. Close with me in prayer. Lord, thank you for the time we've had to go through these very complicated, challenging uh, verses. I thank you for the things that we've learned. I thank you for the celebration that we've had in worship. I thank you for Wes and his wife Annie being with us today. I thank you for the grace we see in their lives. Thank you for the baptism. Lord, I pray that as we go from here, that you would please enable us, Lord, to be witnesses, enable us to be bold and courageous. We know that we're not going to be as bold and courageous as we could be, but Lord, give us more boldness than we've ever shown before. Help us to reach out to the perishing and to share the message of life. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us as we respond to Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life. 
the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.